Get a computer repair business website up and running, starting from scratch, even if you don't know anything about website design. Check out the new Tech Site Builder 2. Save 20% by going to techsitebuilder.com slash MHDD, which stands for My Hard Drive Died. Hello, everybody. Welcome to My Hard Drive Died, episode 19. I am door-to-door geek, a.k.a. Steve McLaughlin. Uh, I am joined, as always, and I feel very honored to be talking with um, Scott Moulton from my from my hard my hardrivedie.com. How's everything going, Scott? It's going great. Thanks for having me back. I, I always appreciate coming on your show, and and uh, I'm glad that that we can do another one. Oh, absolutely. You well, and I was literally like a month ago or so dinging you for a uh, show, and I completely forgot. You spent the last uh, how long down in Australia? Well, I was in Australia for uh, almost three weeks, uh, but also at the same time that you were dinging me, uh, I kind of had a, a really kind of cool thing that happened. Um, I went to do CEIC, which is uh, Guidance Software In-Case uh, Forensics and things like that. I went to the conference that they had last month, and not that I'm you know thrilled that you know there's In-Case or whatever else, or but I have a lot of people that I know or that I've met there. So about the time that you were trying to hit me up for that, uh, one of the foremost experts in, in doing hard drives, period, in the world, uh, flew down to uh, CEIC, and we we hung out, basically, for like three days. Uh, his, wow. his name is Dimitri, and you know him before because we've talked about uh, the the software that he made, the free software that he made that's actually called MHDD, yeah. which is completely coincidental that my myharddrivedied.com happens to be the same letters. It had nothing to do with it. But uh, he created a tool called MHDD, and uh, which later on Seagaters, you know, had bought or somebody had bought. And then, uh, uh, and then he made a tool called the Atola. And so he's interested in doing some forensics topics. And he came down, and we spent three days going over uh, all the forensics things, forensics topics, and things that to add to the Atola. And it was just really awesome to hang out with. I mean, because I know, I know. Our listeners, you know, think of me as like the supreme being in hard drives because this is what we're always talking about and doing. But he's one of those rare people of, you know, only like a handful of three or four people in the entire world who really knows this in-depth stuff. And for me to be able to hang out with him for three days, teach him some of the stuff I know, and he was teaching me some of the stuff, uh, it was just amazing. Uh, and then and then I got on a plane and went to Australia and, you know, did some training in Australia. So that's why we missed this show for the last six weeks or eight weeks. Trust me when I say um, that's a little bit more important than doing a show. <laughs> well, uh, it is, but I appreciate doing the show so that I can talk about new things and new items with our listeners and so that they can be apprised of up, upcoming changes and things like that. Because, uh, you know, for me, uh, seeing Dimitri and talking to Dimitri about all these inside things that, you know, it's these things that are myths or things that, it, that you've never known for all this time, like why something happened or or what right. happened. Like, like one of the examples I can give you is, uh, so in this tool, MHDD, which mm-hmm. most people know because it's a free tool and it has some ability to do some scripting and certain things that, that pretty much no other free tool in the world can do. And it's uh, kind of the standard for people who, who would use something that is low cost or free, and it's a DOS application. And so the current version is 4.6. And in version 4.6, um, there's one thing that's missing that was in 4.5. And and so in 4.5, there was a terminal interface. And if you've heard any of the previous podcasts, you know I've talked about Seagate hard drives. When you connect to a Seagate hard drive, you can use a terminal cable 
and you can talk directly to a Seagate hard drive and actually pass commands, just like right. you can with a modem or, you know, and talk directly to the drive. And so, uh, so this was one of these things I've always wondered, like, why did he remove it in version 4.6? And uh, and it exists in 4.5 because we've got to go back to 4.5 to do some things, and then 4.6 has a couple of of different updates in it. And so the story as it goes is uh, apparently at the time he got bought by Seagate. Like basically right. Seagate said, "Come work for us, and you're gonna you're gonna work for us in our labs, and uh, and we're buying this tool from you. Uh, basically, we're gonna kill it." Is really how it kind of came out to be. It's just like this is the last time you're gonna kind of make this tool and you're going to do something with it. While he was working for his Seagate, he told me the story where he had been working on a new version of MHDD, but they had never told him that he couldn't publish it or do anything. And he had accidentally commented out the lines for the terminal while he was testing something. And then Seagate came to him and said, what is this? What is this you're doing? This is, you know, you can't, you can't do this anymore. We own you. And they're like, stop. No more publishing of this. So the last one that got published mm-hmm. was one with the lines that got commented out uh, and still exists out there in, in the free world, whereas the previous version, you know, had this terminal in it. So, you know, there's just certain stories like that that you just never, you know, you never knew the answers to. And, you know, now it's, you know, th- at least the end of a, a question that I had forever. Right. Right. Now, uh, here's a quick question. Is that cool? Is that tool still valid or you think it's kind of um deprecated because it seems like um uh the um sata chipset driver it seems like more and more computers when i put that on it it's not being it's not able to uh recognize the drive well uh there is some changes in later sata drives and how they acknowledge uh you know the ata command set and what they're actually doing because the the sata command set is actually a separate command set but uh you know certain commands can be applied to it you know so there is kind of an area here where it might actually be eventually completely useless from that standpoint with newer drives like four terabytes and things like that um and so there is some limitations as that has happened so I mean, I wouldn't say it's, you know, worthless or, you know, an unusable tool, but yes, it is, is probably going in that path. And, you know, and, and consequently, I mean, that's like, you know, 10 years old at this point, yeah. or maybe even a little bit older from its existence uh, in the in the 90s. And and that's why he's gone on and built the Atolla and done some other things. And, and, and I'll say, honestly, previously up through like version two of the Atolla, I was not severely impressed with the Atolla at all. I did not think much of the... The, it's actually a hardware platform and software platform that goes together and 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 physically talks and and I didn't you know there were some basic functions of it that were kind of nice and and but for the most part I did not consider it to be a worthwhile tool especially for the expense but in version three completely changed my mind and so uh, that was one of the reasons why Dimitri and I had talked and he had come down to CEIC and I had some real input with him from a standpoint of some of the things I wanted to see in a forensics version of this new tool. And so, so this is why MHDD, you know, uh, he's kind of evolved now into doing all of this instead of trying to build a free tool. There's, there's some things a free tool just can't do in software. Like you can't control power and it's very difficult to control heads and, and SATA resets and bus resets and things like that. You've got to have some sort of a hardware and software that can communicate with each other in order to control power and, and control heads and things like that. And so it's 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 gotten to a spot where MHDD isn't very useful for those functions anymore. And MHDD was also never an imager. 
And that's the problem now is that once you get through the diagnostics part of any of this stuff, your very next step is to try to copy some stuff. And if you right. can't copy it, you've got to shut everything down, start up another piece of software or do something. So so there's still some basic viability to it, but not uh, not a lot. Gotcha. So real quick, is this a um a um a uh, Tola a is it also a hardware box that goes like between the motherboard and the drive? Uh, it is a full system. Well, there's two different ones. There's a uh, he has an Atola Insight, which is uh, and then there's an Atola Distance, and there are two different versions of the same thing. But one of them is a USB device that connects, basically looks like a little tiny lab bench and has a right protect switch and a couple things, and then connects over USB directly to the computer. And that's that's the first version I've had. I've had that one for many years now. And I, I really wasn't very impressed because as a cloner, that was one of the things. It's a single drive, and you've got to clone to an internal drive or do something. But it's a small, portable lab bench kind of thing where it can actually do a one-button one test, and it goes through the entire drive and says, okay, this is what's wrong with it, and now let's try to image it. And then recently, I acquired uh, Distance, which is uh, two drives can be hooked up to it, and it can physically image between the two drives. Sweet. And and so physically, it's uh, you know in the same category. We're looking at a Deep Sparse in the same category, and the Deep Sparse, as you know, is my is my kind of go-to tool that I've been using for all this time. Um, and 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 I don't want to give people the impression that you know one supersedes the other. I see them both as uh, great tools together, and whatever I can't do with one, I can do with the other amazingly. So, you know, this is one of those situations where instead of saying, go buy this tool or go buy this tool, at some point in time, if you're making money and you're figuring out how this works, you buy them both. Right. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. Um, and I'll say, I, I've been trying to explain this to a couple friends recently. The way he got that job is, to me, how a lot of things in the future people can do and it doesn't cost them really any money. It costs them time where he developed MHCD on his own time, put it out there and it got recognized. And that's like his um, living, breathing resume. So for him to get a job, I'm really happy for him. Well, so it's, it's a little bit more than that. He's, you know, I was really amazed when I met him. I met him for the first time, like uh, two and a half, three months ago, we had talked before online and chatted and he's from the Ukraine. So you know he's uh he's not he hasn't been nearby, but recently he's moved to Canada and started his company right over the border from America in Canada, and so now he's traveling more. He's trying to attack the U.S. market from that standpoint. For maybe attack isn't the right word to use anymore. <laughs> uh, things have gotten so sensitive these days. Um, he's he's trying to sell to the U.S. market because it is such a much larger market and going towards forensics, his, his older tools used to be directed more towards firmware. And as we've grown with these drives, uh, we've diminished in our problems with firmware. It's now mostly things that are bad sectors and head problems. And, fir you know, firmware is a small percentage of problems where it's only 10 to maybe 30% at most at this point in time. Uh, so imaging is the far more uh, important task at this point. And so that's kind of the direction he's gone as he's decided to stop focusing on firmware and repairing firmware, but make it so that he can actually make a terrific imager that can actually do this process. And it does uh, a couple of things that a deep star doesn't do, which is basically doing diagnostics. It does some diagnostics directly against the board and the head assemblies and things like that. Things that you can do, you can do some of those basic things with a deep star. Uh, but, you know, generally once I get started on a deep star, I don't have any problems. The issue is what happens when the drive doesn't come up and you can't do anything at all? How do you know it's a board problem? How do you know if it's a head problem? 
Uh, that's that's one of the other issues. And and his tool tries to determine that. I'm uh, amazed at how often it actually does determine it in this right. Very cool. Very cool. Um, Kano, you were in the land down under. I got to ask, what kind of a um, class did you give, and and um, how did it go? Uh, it's a. Uh, it was you know the full fledged data recovery class. It's a. Uh, um, the class itself is a long, grueling. Uh, you know, in this case, like a ten hour a day, and and. We had a fairly diverse group of people from everything from data recovery companies through teachers and professors that were there. Um, generally, like last time I was in Australia, most of them were law enforcement or, or border patrol. And there's a, a budgeting issue from a standpoint of when they actually get their money, like, you know, our government has certain times with which, you know, they will give money. And theirs is the same way. And so I plan on going back in December and supposedly – the other groups will have a much larger budget from that time po- at that po- time point, and I can actually do more police and more agencies. Whereas this one was more individuals and data recovery companies and uh, professors. There was a, you know some people from New Zealand there, um, and so it's it's kind of nice to have such a diverse group. And New Zealand's another place that I'd really love to go. And we're talking to some people about actually doing a class in New Zealand, hoping we can put one together there because it's one of the other ones that I haven't made it to yet. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I I I uh, do envy you for your knowledge, but I think what I envy you the most about is the amount of people you can go see. I mean, all over the world, and it's a job. So when you're there, you have money to spend. You know, yeah, it's uh, you know, it is. Uh, there is some cost involved with trying to make those things happen. And when I do go to someplace like Australia, it does cost more than it would normally cost to do a class, say in Atlanta or someplace here. But like you said, the benefit is actually going to see, I mean, how many people get to say we went to Australia and this time when I was in Australia, because every time I go to Australia, I try to experience something in the country that I find that's unique because they have, you know, a very uh, unique set of things that are there that are oh, nowhere yeah. else in the world. And this time I was able to see a platypus in the wild. And so I had never seen a platypus, I don't even think in a in a zoo or anything in person before. And so, you know, you just see it on Wikipedia and all these other things. And uh, we went to this uh, reserve, which is basically at the north end of where Snowy River is. So the man from Snowy River and the whole thing that was that movie set. Um, it's in the north end of that, and there was a reserve there. And I was able to see a platypus swimming in the water uh, in, a, in a native uh, location. So, uh, And I know that there's a lot of Australians, after talking to people in the class and stuff like that, I don't think anybody, you know, maybe one person in the class had ever seen a platypus in person. So, mm-hmm. so I really appreciate being able to do those things. And, of course, New Zealand is where Lord of the Rings is, mm-hmm. is filmed, and it has some beautiful locations there, uh, as well as uh, you know, penguins walking on the beach and things like that. So, yeah. so I yeah. hope to make it. Yeah, that's the kind of place I just want to go there and have everybody around me just shut up for a couple minutes and let me just look yeah. around because it's epic looking. Yes, yes, Very it cool. is. And of course, we have to dispel this on the show. The toilets don't flow backwards, right? Well, no. See, so yeah, most European toilets, and so this, you know, a lot of this in Australia and stuff like that. You wouldn't know if they flow backwards because everybody uses these these tanks that are just really small tanks at the top where you push a button and it says you know big or large a poop or a pee right. and uh, and and you know then water just goes and it's like being on an airplane it just gets sucked down there really quick so 
I don't know if it spins the other way because I've never seen a toilet in all my travels, including uh, you know France, England, Scotland. None of this. I haven't seen a toilet that spun. Gotcha. Yeah, um, I believe it's actually stemmed from something in the 40s or 50s where the manufacturer for toilets down there purposefully had it designed where it flowed the other way, thus created the myth where it like naturally flowed the opposite way. I I can't say because all of the toilets have all been these. Every they're very you know everybody's about eco and making sure everything is you know eco friendly and things like that too. So. Uh, you know, f- far more so than than what we have in America, where we're yeah. very wasteful with that. Oh process. yeah, yeah, we kind of waste a little bit of everything, or maybe it's a lot of everything. So anyway, so my my plan is to go back and teach again in Australia in December. But before that happens, uh, my partner in Australia is his name is Zoran. He is one of the foremost knowledgeable people. On file systems, I have never met a human being on this planet that knows more about file systems than he does. Takes them apart, experiments with them, find out what's going on, and uh, he and I have basically agreed to try to do a combination class here in America in November, where we're going to try to, for forensics people, try to teach um, kind of the first part, which would be if you have a damaged drive, how do you deal with the forensics imaging component mm-hmm. without doing the repair? Not what actually happens in my class, in my current class. We're, talk, we're talking an entirely new class, but it's still going to be focused on a deep spar and a tola or something along those lines and imaging something soundly that is somewhat functional and then has some corruption there. And then step by step go through all of the file systems and he will break down every single file system into in hex, like part of the class will include the WinHex specialist components, which are WinHex is a as a, a tool like Xways Forensics and Incase and things like that. It is a tool for delving into a file system in hex, looking at it, repairing it, making changes to it, and doing things. And uh, he has a he has a very unique take on how to actually do some repairs on a damaged file system itself and knows more about how the file, I mean, even somebody who's like messing with you and makes a registry setting change may actually affect the file system and flip a bit in the file system. And you can tell that by looking in the file system itself or looking in some of the information in NTFS. And uh, and so he's breaking down all of the file systems and actually having labs that go with each one. So, you know, when you're talking about EXT or uh, XFAT or FAT or NTFS or HFS, because this is the other thing is we're focusing also on HFS, which... Very few forensics people uh, focus on HFS, the catalog, and things in HEX. So this will be one of the first classes I know of that actually looks at HFS in depth as well. Wow, that sounds crazy because, I mean, just to really, truly comprehend and understand one file system takes a heck of a lot of work to basically be able to go in, and not at a microscopic level, this is like going into inside of the cell and manipulating DNA kind of level on all the file systems is kind of insane. Yeah, it's uh, we're going to look at it at bit level. And so there are certain things like, um, like XFAT is very bit level driven. So there's uh, bit maps that uh, are very important in the process as well. Whereas, you know, NTFS and things have, are a little bit more matured. They've been around for 20 years longer. And so we know a little bit more about them, even though there's no real documentation or anything. And and we have kind of a three-day structure for that part of the class, where for three days, breaking down, like fat itself isn't extremely hard because there's only so many things you can do. And when there's corruption, there's only so many pieces you can fix. Uh, XFAT is much more robust. And dealing with it, there's there's 
a structure that repeats through the entire process. And then NTFS, each one of the file records and index records are going to be the same. So as we break down each one of those, we actually have a lab for each one uh, going into them in hex and, and physically modifying or flipping bits or doing things. We'll actually be able to see what the difference is between having something that is uh, corrupt. And, and I, I do do one little thing that's kind of like this in my current class where I actually have an, uh, an MST, uh, uh, NTFS tables that are corrupt and tools cannot access them normally. Like forensics tools cannot actually see them. They see them as uh, uh, no file system found and it looks like raw. And most people would just go ahead and carve data out of them, you know, looking for headers and looking for footers and carving the data out. And the problem is, is that you lose a tremendous amount of data. You lose text files, you lose, you know, there's sparse files, different components in your file system if you don't figure out how to mount your file system. And all those records are there by themselves. And so I have kind of a scenario where I showed them how I can get around that problem and actually get something to repair and use two tools to talk together and get into a corrupt file system and then export all the data. And so we're going to talk about taking this a step further where we're actually going to manually go in and repair them and look at them. And this is why it was focused on a forensics class as opposed to just being a data recovery class is because in forensics, it's far more important to understand the bits and where they are and if somebody's trying to mess with you uh, and what has actually happened to the file system. But it'll be very viable for data recovery people who don't really have a clear understanding of hex and they really wanted to have a class that really teaches them how to use a hex editor because everybody thinks that's kind of the cool stuff. It's like being in the matrix and uh, they don't really understand it well enough to know how to fix something or what to look at. And that's what this class is going to be about, that piece that's kind of missing in all the forensics classes. Gotcha. So is this basically now like the next um, generation of your class? Um, because Zorin and I are doing it together, I'm not going to say it's the next generation of my class, because if you're going down the data recovery path, there's, there's other things I can focus on, such as... Uh, the modules that are available in each one of the tools and what can actually happen with uh, SATA and USB and soldering and SSD drives. I mean, so literally I have like three different paths I can go down that would just be specific for data recovery itself or even advanced PC3000 type things where you're working on firmware. Um, so those are things that are all been in the back of my mind to create a class. Um, whereas this particular class is going to be a combined class that's that's focused on how to use a hex editor and what it means to actually be in a file system. And, and it, that was really, again, more from the forensic side. I spent a lot of time doing forensics and I know a lot of forensics people from teaching this class that really don't have a sound understanding of that. And there's really no place to go. Um, I mean, there is Stefan who makes X ways and WinHex, you know, has his own class on, on file systems. And it's basically, uh, you know, three days, with some practicals, but it's um, it still it leaves you wanting more, and I think I think Zorin has the more, and so that's really the direction that I, that I'm trying to say is that I've got a piece of of the class that I'm working on that will be a two day piece dealing with files and how you actually know that a file is missing a sector and uh, how you image a drive that may be damaged, but again not going into the head repair, not going into the other stuff that actually happens in my other class. Uh, and then just focusing on those pieces to get it to the spot where then we could work on it and Zorin can walk people through how you actually physically fix the file system itself 
rather than just trying to work around it or carving data. And and one of my one of my you know I know that I keep rambling on here and you never get to say anything. Sorry about that. That's fine, man. <laughs> but one of the other things, um, NTFS inherently in the file system is going to change the record size. At some point in time, the record size is no longer going to be 1K. And so our problem is, is that right now what happens is we have something that's called resonant files. The resonant files means a file that is that is small enough with all of its attributes is stored inside an MFT entry. So if it's like 931 bytes, it will store that file inside the MFT entries, and it doesn't exist as a standalone file on its own. So you can't go carve it and find it and go look for it. And 1K is not too bad. That basically means text files or something like that. It's not really a big deal. But natively built into the file system in upcoming releases, they have the ability to expand that size now, and we believe they're going to go to 4K. I actually have been told mm-hmm. they're going to go to 4K by some people at Microsoft. I've been told that the record size is going to change to 4K because of new hard drives that do 4K on the hard drive itself, the ones that we've been talking about, advanced format hard drives. Right. So now if you've got 4K and it will be stored inside the record, you have a tremendous amount of data that will be lost if you don't really know and understand the file system and how to fix it and look at it because you can't just go carving. I see forensics people do this all the time. They just go carve data and you know hope they get a JPEG and then throw it out there. Right. But they're missing all this important data, you know, metadata. How do you get your metadata, your dates and times? Like you might be able to find the JPEG, but you don't know a file name, you don't know the date and time, you can't prove when it was when it happened. But those records are still there and they're still on the drive. And you can work backwards and actually find those records. Yeah, that's the difference between like um, amateur hour data, data, data re um, re um, recovery to a guy that actually knows forensics. Well, see, that's the real problem is that a lot of guys who actually know forensics don't know this part either. Oh, and so they're kind of the amateur hour in forensics, and they really don't have that skill either. That's scary. Well, and that's the problem. That's what I'm trying to say is that, and I I don't mean to offend any forensics people out there because obviously I want to take this class and learn how to do this. But there is, you know, a lot of times what ends up happening is there's really nothing out there to teach you this stuff in depth. And so there are a few classes, but they don't go in depth. They don't go this far. And so they barely skirt the system and, and barely even touch on anything. And so those forensics people who really want to understand this and really want to be, you know, supreme commander of this type of material, this is where we're trying to head in that path. Because I only know maybe five people in the entire world that can do this. And so, you know, the normal forensics people that I normally get in a class do not know this at all. And and I've I've taught a lot of people. We're using tools that are automated and, you know, going and finding data. And I find errors in other tools. InCase doesn't always do everything right. FTK doesn't always do everything right. So sometimes I have to go and manually look at it and compare results. And so this is what I'm trying to get at is that, you know, even some of the forensics people out there were still in amateur hour. Yeah, um, that kind of reminds me. I had an interview a couple years ago down in D.C., where they asked me what kind of tools I used on a database, to which I replied, I use my brain. They said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, all the tools that, and I mentioned like 18 tools, they're all created by man. Man is flawed. Those tools are not perfect. I know my database and my data set and my data needs better, and I know the network better. I know how to tune it better. Boom, bam, didn't get the job. I was told because of... (laughs) 
because of that answer right there. Right. Because so, you knew too much. <laughs> well, and I guess I didn't. And and one and here's the thing: the, all those tools have a use, but they are not the use. You know what I mean? The, it is impossible for someone to create a perfect tool. Right. You know, and that's why, like, this is the extra level of knowledge that people need to where they can shine above the rest and they can do things that other people think aren't even possible. Well, see, and I'm sorry you didn't get the job. I mean, it, it, well, it, but one of the reasons might also be because a lot of times they want somebody certified in certain tools so that they can say they're certified. And then, you know, even though you can do it in a hex editor, they may frown on that because there's no real way to prove the process. Yeah, same yeah, same exact kind of thing. And the place I work now, they won't send me for training for certification because then they know I'll leave. You know, <laughs> well, you know. Well, that, so. I mean, that could happen. That could be irrelevant, right? Yeah, <laughs> you I could agree. leave anyway, regardless of whether or not they send you to a class or not. At some point in time, people like the dude who can do. Yeah, yeah, and um, to be honest, my main goal now with any job is to just have fun. Let me do what I know how to do the best way I know how to do it and just get out of my way. See, that's exactly what I, that's why I do my own thing because, you know, I don't want to, to, you know, I owned this company at one time and we had, you know, upwards of 13, 14 employees. And all I ended up doing all the time was spending all my time managing them, managing the schedule, managing clients. When I'm a tech, I wanted to do tech work, which is why I sold that company so I can actually do what I want to do. And so, so I'm glad that you've at least made that so that you can, you can do life the way you want to do it. Oh yeah. And, um, I hearken back to a Podnuts episode. I honestly believe it was around Podnuts episode eight or 10 with, uh, Thor Schrock from the Las Vegas area. And he said it very clearly. I mean, he knew some stuff and he said, if you really love to tinker into tech, don't own your own business because owning a business is not fixing stuff. It's managing stuff. Well, I beg to differ for my business. I have decided I don't want 14 people anymore, so I control it with three and, uh, and I have hands on on everything. And so, so, but that's why, that's why, like there's certainly, you're right. Someone could come in and manage my business better and make more money and and tell me what to do right. and we'll do far more and I'll spend a lot less time doing paperwork or accounting or anything else which unfortunately at this point I actually know accounting pretty well uh, <laughs> um I'm hoping that this is a skill that will help me uh someday when I'm doing some forensics that lends itself to some financial content um, generally speaking, they usually outsource that to a forensic accountant. But I'm hoping that I'll be able to uh, recognize enough of the material to understand uh, actually how you know the content's actually flowing and doing stuff. I've done several cases before where it's you know like a diamond mine and we're following the money, um, right? You know that kind of stuff. But it's very difficult when you don't have the forensic accounting background. Gotcha. Okay, so you just had the class in Australia. You next have a class in Santa Cruz? Yes. Uh, so anybody in California who's interested in this class right now, it's in Santa Cruz, uh, which I know you know might be a little bit of drive if you're coming you know south from San Francisco or coming north from San Francisco or coming south from San Diego or something. But uh, Santa Cruz, uh, we're actually doing it at a police station, and the public is welcome, so they don't have to be law enforcement or anything. But Santa Cruz Police Department has sponsored this class. And it's rare that I do uh, 
a West Coast class because it is so expensive right. for me to rent a location or to find a location or do something. And so this is one of those rare instances where, you know, at least I'm close enough to you that you could actually drive up or do something. And, and, I, and I'm begging people to kind of go because if, if I don't get enough students to actually do this class, I get I get less and less uh, apt to try to do a West Coast class. It seems like I, I have more trouble on the West Coast than I do on the East Coast. East Coast, I could go do a class in D.C. and fill it up tomorrow. Right. But, uh, but West Coast, it's pretty hard to get people to show up. And so it's August 19th through 23rd. And, uh, and it ought to be a fantastic class for, you know, especially with the lab and the equipment and all the stuff that I'm shipping there. So, uh, so hopefully people are interested and, and will listen to this podcast and sign up. Oh yeah. I definitely encourage you to, there's no doubt in my mind, you're not going to find a place to get as much raw information in such a compact time frame. Yeah. Well, I, I agree. I try to do everything I can and I, you know, I tend to do both the data recovery side and the forensic side, and I can cover almost any topic that has to do with, you know, anything from database repair all the way through exchange server. Uh, I've done all of this at this point in time. And, but, you know, the core of the class is 10 hours a day, and the majority of it is about how to pull heads and platters out of a drive, repair it, then actually get the content off of the drive. So looking at damaged drives and looking at uh, content in hex, we do have one day we're actually looking at stuff in a hex editor and trying to do some file system stuff to repair some content. But uh, the majority of the class is, is how to get this data off of a damaged piece of media, whether it be an SSD or a hard drive. Gotcha. Okay, then after that, you're going to go back to Australia at the end of this year? Uh, so after after the August class in November, as I mentioned earlier, we're talking about doing this file system. So I'm going to start marketing and selling this file system forensics class. So it's going to be forensics imaging with file systems in November. We don't have an exact date yet, but it's going to be somewhere in the, probably the first or second week of November because we have uh, Thanksgiving. The closer you get Thanksgiving, the less people want to come to a class. And that one is most likely going to be Atlanta. So gotcha. it's easy easy for me to set up a class in Atlanta, bring people here and do stuff. So I'm going to sponsor this class, and, and me and Zorn are going to do it together. And uh, so those of you who haven't had a chance to meet uh, someone who really knows file systems, um, I mean, this is the kind of thing where even I am in awe when I mm-hmm. see what he can do. And uh, and then following that, then I will turn around and go back to Australia. Him and I will actually travel back to Australia, and then I will teach uh, – uh, possibly two classes. I'm actually looking at doing a training class for the Atola for like three days and then splitting that off and then doing my actual data recovery class with uh, deep spars for the other five days. Gotcha. That sounds really cool. Um, yeah, I can't encourage people enough. Uh, go to, go to my, go to my hard drive die.com data, um, data re, um, re, um, recovery training on the top, you can see all the classes when they're at details about them and sample videos of actual classes. That alone right there, if that doesn't get you um, wanting to go, I don't know what will. Now, um, I don't I don't want this to be an entire marketing, uh, you know, usually, you know, usually we have some really good, you know, tips and tidbits and stuff in here. And I know we've kind of gone down this path because it's just been like two or three months as I've been on. But, uh, but I do want to talk about USB hard drives and, uh, yeah, you kind of hinted to me before the show about that, and I think I gathered what you meant, but can you tell us about it? 
Well, you had said you had been talking to somebody uh, about USB and, and pro- can you tell me what you were talking? Yeah. Um, I had a buddy who said a hard drive was acting up and it was in a USB in, um, in, um, in, um, closure. So I told him, dude, the first thing you got to do is open that thing up, see if there's one drive or two. If there's two drives, then you got to worry because then there might be some kind of raid going on, some kind of strike going on. But if it's just one drive, you need to take it out of the case and hook it up directly to a motherboard. Because from what you said in the past, um, USB is not capable of sending certain commands to the hard drive where the raw native IDE SATA kind of interface can send a bunch more commands. So it should be more, much, much more likely that you can save data, restore data from it. Yeah, so you're right. The uh, USB, or at least USB 2.0 and earlier, uh, very limited in some of its communications. It, it may actually have some stuff that's built in, but it wasn't very focused in the drivers. It, there wasn't any real commands that people could easily control through USB and talk to a drive in the enclosure. It's a you know a cheap Chinese chipset that somebody bought for 25 cent, and you're plugging in a wire. Then you'll see a driver start up. You'll see a mass storage driver start up in any operating system that you're talking to, uh, and it has to do a conversion basically to do some sort of a communication to it as a mass storage device. And you're limited by what you can actually do. And so they kind of fixed that in USB 3. By the time we started heading into USB 3, has its own protocol, has its own controls, um, far more advanced features than what we've previously had. And so what you noticed, though, the time that USB 3 came out is, uh, and I think I'm pretty sure it was Western Digital was the very first one, but the Western Digital passport drives, those little two and a half inch passport drives, what they decided to do was let's save five cents and not put a SATA connector on there anymore. And let's just solder on to the board itself a USB connector. And wow. then there is no SATA connector at all. So these external enclosures that you've been getting for the last three or four years, especially these passport drives and a few others, um, when you when you get them, there is no SATA connector. So you open them up. And this is one of those things where in the data recovery field, we've had problems with them. We've had you know, in years, there's always, we're trying to work backwards and figure out what it is we can do to reverse this process that they've done that destroys our life and makes our life so hard. And so, you know, 2009 or so rolls around. One of the things that we had to do was it it still has the capability. SATA is still on there. There's just no connector anymore. So what they did was they took where the four wires would have been, and they're, and don't get me wrong here because there is a header there is on the end of the board there's a header and it has like eight pins on it or six you know you know ten pins on it that is not the header for the sata that is not that is not useful in that way at all you can provide power on two of those pins so that the drive can spin up so that you don't use sata you know connectors or something like that to provide power um, but what has to happen is there's four basic wires for sata and there's four capacitors that will be on the board. And these four capacitors basically are hardwired on the board to allow it to pass to a USB chip. So what happens is it w- it's just an inline converter that's on the board that just sits there and then passes it to a USB chip and then comes out USB. So when you plug it in, you get your power, you get your communication, you get everything. And so and, and physically what would happen is we would have to break the capacitors 
then we would have to solder on four little tiny wires. And we're talking tiny wires. We're talking the holes are pin size. Oh. So you would physically have to like desolder where those capacitors were. Then you'd have to physically you know, find those locations where those pins were and then solder four wires into those pins so that you would actually have the correct layout and you have to know which ones are the right ones. And so, you know, people have put diagrams out on the internet and other things and we've, you know, basically been looking at them for years and there's been like three or four different versions of these things at this mm. point. So we have to find the right one, break the break part of the drive, solder on the SATA cable, solder the power onto the pin header, and then, you know, physically hope nothing falls apart in the process while we're trying to to talk directly to the drive over SATA the way we normally would. That sounds like a nightmare. It is not fun. No, no. Nobody likes it. Nobody likes it at all. That's for sure. So, and, okay. and so, unfortunately, for now, we've been suffering. Yeah. So, so, uh, so about August, September of last year, I got one of the first uh, beta boards that DeepSpar made. DeepSpar makes a board now. They, I don't know, for most people who don't know, there's a new version of the Deep Spar, which is a card. And that card is called version 4. And so this Deep Spar disk imager that's version 4 has all these things that you can add on. You can do forensics modules and network modules and all these other things that you can add on to the board itself. And some of them actually sit in line in the bus. So in other words, you physically put your, your Deep Spar in, and now they have a USB card where you can put it in. Now this USB card... It's not actually new. It's not easy for me to say new. It is new in the fact that it's been out less than a year. I've got, like, board number one or two or something. And so I've got one of the first ones uh, and was using it in beta. And I have been massively impressed with this board. Um, it stops me from having to break all the stuff that wasn't working uh, and hook up SATA. I don't have to break... People have been talking about this for a while, like, how do you communicate with the USB... And, you know, the easy manual way is always, you know, it's the cheapest way is to break the pins and to solder something on. But it is really a nightmare when you're talking about consistently doing a lot of work over and over again. Um, it is nice to have a, a board that goes straight into a slot. And when the deep spark comes on, it recognizes that this board exists. Like it actually sees it on the bus and says, oh, look, I have a USB board that can talk to me. And when you plug in a hard drive to it, it will talk over the native protocol directly to the hard drive. So it can do a number of things that you could not have done otherwise. It can do head maps. It can turn the power off. It can reset it. I mean, it's not as robust as a actual drive connected to SATA, but it is impressive in the fact that we can actually communicate with a drive, image a drive, uh, without breaking all these connectors or doing anything uh, and do it natively. Right over the protocol. That sounds like such a uh, time time uh, saver. It, it is an amazing time saver, and it's uh, I, you know it's not easy for me to tell you all these things that happen when you're looking at the deep spar. Its commands are different, and you'll actually see different errors and different commands and different items in the log than what you would normally see while you're communicating with it. And it'll actually tell you I'm communicating with something over USB, and it says it over in the corner. And uh, and physically talks over the bus directly to this card, and I'm just so thrilled that I can do these things and I can image a drive that was physically damaged. Because the the real problem is this other this one other piece. It's not just let's break this chip and let's plug in 
uh, some, you know, some SATA thing. There's different ones that also have encryption boards on them. Uh. So if you have to break something and it's got an encryption chip or an encryption board, sometimes you've got to actually find one, repair one, desolder uh, a very complex chip, um, which, again, if I'm doing it, I can do it fairly easily with an infrared desoldering unit. So if people haven't heard that whole discussion before, using an infrared desoldering unit where you're using light to desolder something far easier than doing anything else. But it's still it's still painful. You still have this pain that comes with the fact that you've got to break something that has an encryption chip on it, hope you can fix it and get around it. Because you can, you can image a drive that is encrypted. You just can't do anything with the data afterwards. Right, 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 exactly. So, so these boards that are in line, now we can just plug the cable straight in and... You know, this this is one of those situations where if there is a password, you might still have to clear the password, do something else. We may have to do something to clear a password, but uh, we can physically image a drive over USB. Very cool. Yeah, that that sounds like uh, I don't want to say like a magic key, but uh, it definitely sounds useful, functional for anybody that wants to do this seriously. Yes, I I agree. It's a little expensive. Uh, the part is not cheap. But the fact that you can at least do it without breaking a drive or, you know, this is one of the other areas that we cross into in forensics is how much did you have to do to the drive? And when you're going to testify, are we going to have to explain this whole process? Whereas if you can just say, I plugged this in and just worked, right? Uh, you know, it, it eliminates an entire discussion versus, well, this is these chips and I had to desolder these. Then I had to reset. I mean, you look like the geek to the to the jury, but. You know, the jury also isn't necessarily going to understand everything you say, and it's just a conversation that just makes them go, you know, go to sleep. Exactly. Gotcha. That sounds really cool. Now, I had a quick question for you. I had a good friend, uh, Nightwise, over at um, nightwise.com, just get a Note 2. And he said he had a 64-gig SD card. And, of course, as soon as he said 64-gig because of our previous discussions alarm bells went off in my head clanging super hard saying x fat x fat and then he went on to tell me the issues he was having uh trying to basically sync itunes stuff from his mac to that card and there's no doubt in my mind apple has enough money that it should be able to easily pay microsoft for that three hundred thousand dollar fee yeah, they uh, they did actually, and uh, as of uh, an update that was applied uh, in November of 2010, it has been fixed. So you can talk natively to a card that has XFAT on it uh, since 2010. So November of 2010. So he needs to make sure that he has upgraded. Uh, I think I think it was one of the last updates to snow to uh to i think it was snow lion i mean snow leopard snow lion right. yeah that'll be the next version of their os instead yeah. of mavericks should be snow lion no uh so i'm pretty sure at least from that standpoint that that's what we're looking at so november of 2010 all the updates have been applied now part of the problem is is that uh it's a slightly different chipset and some of the some of the, the current card readers that weren't updated before 2009. So if he has an old card reader too, uh, that was you know 2007 or whatever that might have been in a machine, it may also have some difficulty communicating with this new interface that actually exists on 
uh, on these cards. And so Macs have updated everything since 2010. So they have updated, I mean, even as early as 2009, they did update their card readers in their machines. So, you know, that may be part of the problem is he needs to make sure that he's gone ahead and done the updates and that uh, that he does have a current card reader, or he can just go to the store and get you know a forty dollar card reader and be fine, or whatever it is that make sure it actually applies you know the new standard and not some old cheap one. I've had to test several different card readers uh, to make sure which ones actually support the new format and the new uh, higher end cards. Uh, and trust me when I say there's a bunch of them that are still being sold out there that don't support it correctly. Oh, I'm sure. So, yeah. So you want to make sure at least that he's got that right version and he's doing that. And 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 to also correct the it's not a three hundred thousand dollar fee if it's a computer. So yeah. the three hundred thousand dollar fee is if you're a camera or an embedded device or something like that, they charge a three hundred thousand dollar fee. If you're a computer vendor or somebody who is making a platform, they do it on volume sales. So they actually have a different number by which they are applying some sort of licensing fee. And uh, I'm sure it equates to a, a larger amount than 300000 uh, yeah. if you have a larger user base than, uh, you know, say, your camera or something. Well, I don't want to know how much money that would equate to. <laughs> I really don't. So, yeah. what, so what you're saying, this also is not just a software issue. You know, do, do you have the um, a ability to do it? But it's also a hardware issue. Yes, it is a hardware issue as well. Uh, Across the board. Yeah, then. so they so they changed uh, the way that they read data. They needed to improve the speed to actually deal with these larger chipsets, anything larger than 32 gigs. So uh, so they changed a format. Now, my understanding is also in the next version of SD cards, which is just around the corner, they're actually going to change the pinouts. And so when they mm. change the pinouts, we're actually talking at a whole other set of readers or a whole other version of readers. And so, you know, again, it makes... You have to go out and buy either a new reader or a new machine or whatever else if you're going to have embedded. But the pinouts are actually going to change, and the physical card shape. They've already they've already got the spec written, and I've already seen it and looked at it. And so there's there's already a physical change in that. Gotcha. So anybody going out right now getting SD card stuff, if there's any likelihood you're going to get a 64 gig or, or bigger card, you better make sure it supports XFAT. It supports XFAT and uh, it's UHS, so it's a new a new standard called UHS for communication. Uh, and it's been a little while since I looked at it, so I probably need to double check that. But UHS, I believe, is the name of the standard. Yeah, um, for, for communication. I believe I got SanDisk Ultra 32 gig cards that are supposedly class faster than class 10, and I think it was UHS was the. Yeah, UHS Standard 1 is the UHS Standard 1, and that's the new uh, performance, optimized for performance, uh, class, blah, 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 communication standard. So that's what you're looking at. Um, Gotcha, gotcha. So UHS-I-whatever. And so it has a special little symbol on it, and that's what you actually need to make sure that your card reader supports as well. Right, yeah, yeah, because on, like, two of my card card, um, thing readers, it can read it but it writes uncommonly slow. Yeah, right. It's, like, ridiculous. Well, you also have that problem on on no-name brands. Like, if you buy a no-name brand, kind of cheap brand, uh, what you'll end up finding sometimes is that uh, the the actual NAN chip that they used, it's got a ha- high read speed but a very slow write speed. Right. And so normally the write speed is already, like, 10 or 20% slower than your read speed anyway. But uh, you'll find some... 
you know, cheap ass, no name brand, terrible brands uh, that are out there or, you know, the Micro Center brand or whatever, that they just used a cheap, terrible chip. Hello, everybody. Sorry, we had a small audio issue. Uh, we did get everything back up and working, so here's the rest of the show. Okay, so I didn't know we were going to see a complete S- a complete shift in SD hardware, too. So that's uh, news to me. I guess that's uh, more stuff I'm going to have to switch out on my home network. For- yeah, the entire, entire point is going to be speed. Uh, our problem is when we get something that's 64 gigs, if we're still using an old USB interface through that chipset, it's going to take a really long time to transfer data. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's one of the, I think, hurdles that has to be addressed. I mean, with hard drives, once we got up past a terabyte, it was like, you know, we just had to have something new. No, you're right. It's uh, it's, And, and there's still going to be, at some point in time, some completely different future interface, probably still based on, well, at least what the Mac calls Thunderbolt, right. because really uh, that's Intel's creation. It's not Mac-specific and uh, called LightPeak. Exactly. And that's really the fastest interface that exists on a computer at the moment. Uh, but it was originally a fiber optic base uh, and not a copper base, which is what Apple did to it. They made it a copper base so they could, you know, pass power on it as well. Ah, gotcha. Didn't know that. I knew they changed yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, that was what the whole point was, is that they switched it. Um, so the whole point ended up being just power on your base. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, uh, I honestly had two more questions I was going to throw at you. Uh, one of them was, it's honestly been a while since we've delved into the entire realm of SSDs, but it appears to me like not a lot has really changed. It seems like the cheaper SSDs are always going to be a multi-layer SSDs, which has its own world of possible problems. And I still don't think they're long-term reliability is up to par unless you spend a whole lot of money for it. Uh, has anything changed in the SD realm? Nope. Uh, and I don't believe even if you spend a whole lot of money on it uh, that it's going to change its lifespan a lot either. Uh, I mean, the problem is is that the faster that we want to write to it and the larger we need a chipset, the more detrimental it is to the chipset itself till it actually causes physical problems as you're reading and writing to it. So, uh, the erasure process and the charge process is actually, you know, uh, hot electron injection is actually part of the physical damage that actually happens. And so, you know, I haven't even seen a big change in the plateau at all in the last six months. It seems like it's kind of reached it a level. And uh, other than um, some tools to modify them, like in other words, there's some uh, uh, mass production tools in order to kind of edit your drive or, or you know, make it perform differently or faster or doing some, you know, software tricks to it. It kind of seems like we've reached this plateau, though, where, um, you know, unless some earth-shattering thing happens really soon, it's just going to level out like this for, you know, a year or two until the next thing comes along, which I hope is racetrack memory. Right. And domain walls and racetrack memory, which is where I really hope something goes. But, uh, you know, it's hard to know at this point. I mean, maybe we'll just get a holographic chip someday and we'll just, you know, slap it right in the middle of our computer and, you know, Princess Leia's going to pop up. or Exactly. Something. Yeah, Um, <laughs> racetrack memory, correct me if I'm wrong, that was, like, uh, teased on the horizon at least six years ago? 
Yeah, uh, so Stuart Parkins is the guy who created that, who is also the same guy who created the head of our hard drive, and he's been working on it uh, since 2001, 2002. And so he had a um, he had a demo that he did in 2005 or 2006 to at least show you know proof of concept that it actually could work. And it, his entire point is to capture the state of an atom. Or, or where the atom is physically without changing its state. So it actually will be the first time we don't have a phase change or something that involves some sort of a, a change in, the, in capturing this content that he'll be able to measure in some way and actually be able to tell you what bits are supposed to be stored there. Now, I have no idea what the caveats are going to be, and you know, since nobody's got their hands on one, you know, his projected time frame for release of the product uh, has always been 2017. Gotcha. So 20, 2017, as we approach it, uh, you know, maybe there's some realistic gold there that by 2015 something's running and 2017 it goes to market. But, uh, you know, IBM makes all their money by uh, licensing right. uh, or royalties and products and stuff like that. So at least from that standpoint, that's that's probably the projected direction since they deal mostly with storage. Right, yeah, big blue. Um now I gotta throw in, I gotta throw in this question just because it's in the news kind of thing, and you're the only person I know who actually knows fundamentals of hard drives. Okay, <laughs> this might be a curveball. Sorry. Okay. Okay. Utah, NSA, supposedly five zettabytes of storage. I first have to ask you, I mean, do you think the possibility that they're using standard hard drives is even a possibility? Or do you think they're actually using something custom or something different? Well, uh, you know, my personal opinion is is they're not much in the development department. So I, I severely, you know, seriously doubt that they've created some new, if they had, that it'd be you know, a boon to the rest of America that we all of a sudden have some way of storing, you know, a pocket size full of zettabytes. You know, I don't think that that's really plausible. So my guess is, is again, it's kind of, you know, the Walmart scenario where you've just got banks and banks and banks, you know, uh, of, of computers that are, you know, meshed together, raid or, you know, a number of different ways. But uh, I, I can't, you know, unless... I, you know, it's hard for me to speak on this topic because I really don't know what they're storing. Even though I've done some training and done some things for them, they're not going to come out and say, oh, yeah, we've got this, you know, magical super secret device. But I can tell you they've typically been fairly interested in RAID. So RAID, again, might be, you know, your plausible, you know, direction that you're going here. If you have uh, large quantities of drives and large quantity of data, that's that's how you do it. Uh, I'm sure compression and a number of other ways of dealing with stuff, but I just can't see it as being some phenomenal changes in equipment. You know, it's probably much more like what we do in audio compression. There are some massive, you know, changes in audio compression from that standpoint. You know, Olympus is always big in, in developing processes so that you can actually, and, you know, and again, keep in mind, if you're doing audio compression or doing a number of different things, it doesn't have to be large for you to understand what they're saying. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be, you know, it can be a very small file and very lossy and still be able to actually tell you what they're saying and record large, large quantities of material uh, at a low quality, just enough so that it's, it's usable. So, you know, I, yes, I know we have this large quantity of data, but we've also had the other problem, which, you know, even I saw the other day where, you know, somebody is trying to say in the same documents that released by Snowden that uh, that 
the U.S. Postal Service takes a snapshot yeah. of the outside of every envelope that passes through. Now, I can believe to a certain extent that that actually happens, but every package kind of hard to know. I mean, it, it you know, unless it's part of the sorting machine or sorting process that they do and they just happen to keep storing it. But, you know, 160 billion envelopes, I mean, that's still massive storage. Yeah, I can tell you um, from what I've seen inside of post offices, the machines do basically, I, I assume it has to take a picture, feed in, read it, and then send it to the appropriate channel, automated machines. Right. And yeah. even though they have a huge reduction in what they used to do 10, 15 years ago, the quantities still have to be utterly mind-numbing. Yeah, right. I, I agree. And you you still come down to the situation, which is how are we storing this material? Are they you know, only encoding the information and not really taking a snapshot of the, of the outside? Right. I mean, because it could just be some encoded process like you discussed this with this and store it in text. Uh, I, I mean, it may not be an actual photo of the envelope. I don't, I don't really know. I don't have a basis for this at this point. Uh, strangely enough, even training all these people and training, you know, the inspector general's office and post office and stuff, I, I don't know what they use. They don't tell me most of the time when we have some sort of discussion. Right. Yeah. And I'll just throw out there. I don't care if they're taking a picture of the envelope. I look at that as being non-private. It's the out facing of it. Just like sending a uh, postcard. I don't. Ex uh, well, where I have a problem with it, and you know, and again, this isn't going to be necessarily an easy topic for us to to discuss as far as hard drives and things go. My problem is the correlation of data over a quantity of time. It's not just like okay, they just took a snapshot of it today. They're talking about they took snapshots of stuff for the last ten years. And, and, and let me point out why I have a problem with this. And again, I don't know all the facts, so I can't tell you what I believe one way or another. So I don't mean to offend anybody. So, you know, if I offend, you know, Orlando police or FBI or somebody like that, I'm sorry, that's not my intent. But uh, so in the Boston bombing, there was a situation where, you know, the guy was a boxer and he knew somebody. When I was in Orlando for CEIC, the police were down there to go and see someone who knew one of the Boston Bomber guys because they had been in a boxing ring together. So supposedly the story as it goes is they go to knock on this guy's door and supposedly he has a knife. So they shoot him dead. So like 10 police officers show up and they shoot him dead. So a guy with a knife that you're not going to get any answers to now. So if there actually was some issue that might have been, oh, okay, he's, you know, he's, he's part of this bombing ring or he knows something. I, I don't know all the details. But my problem is the association. My problem is, you know, just because this guy was in a boxing ring, and I don't know that that's the only thing that they're investigating. I'm just saying that that's my problem with this, is that 10 years from now, someone who I wrote a letter to, uh, so Dmitry, as an example, from the Ukraine. You know, not to say that this is going to happen, so don't. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying, in 10 years from now, I've had this discussion where I've met with Dmitry, and I, and I admire the guy for what he's done. But who knows, in 10 years, there might be some problem, and now I'm associated as, you know, some sort of a communist or something because I've discussed something with them. That's my only problem, will, is that I, this collection of, of, of correlated data. The United States or our government technically isn't supposed to be making lists and checking it twice. That's, that's supposed to be the, the scenario here. Absolutely. And so, 
So I don't want to get into a really big, uh, you know, long drawn out discussion that might offend certain, you know, law enforcement officers. But that's kind of my opinion is that there's just a certain amount of correlated data that may not have anything to do with anything that happens in the future. And I'm not really thrilled with the idea that we're going to keep it. Yeah. Um, I'll ask you, please don't carry a knife. Um, and I'll say, <laughs> I can I, I can never remember the term. Um, causation does not mean correlation, I think is the term. Where just because there was a letter in the past sent from you to him does not mean there was an actual link to communism, or terrorism, or drug cartel, or money laundering. Or McCarthyism, or... Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I understand your point. I just, I'm just thinking that that's how the investigations might go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and to me, that's what I fear is the unknown the unknown of how they're going to act or react once this data is consumed, digested, looked at, regurgitated. Right. And as we have the ability to continue to store tremendous amounts of data, and it's going to get bigger and oh, yeah. bigger and bigger, and, you know, instead of it being, you know, worrisome such as a RAID array or this one, because this is not contiguous storage that we're talking about. There's no way, you know, Zettabytes is contiguous storage. It's, you know, a multitude of different possibilities and redundant uh, abilities here and it costs billions to probably oh, keep up. Yeah. I mean, I have no idea how much it would cost. If you told me to put together a Zettabyte, I'm sure I can't do it on a small budget. Uh, I don't know what it would take at this point. Yeah. And um, I'll say, I think one of the things I heard a couple years ago, which I didn't realize was 50 years ago, a hundred years ago, whatever it was free as in time and money to be private, to be public, cost money because you had to buy a newspaper you had right. to pay to be in a new all this kind of thing and now now it's the opposite completely right? the opposite if you want to be private you literally have to spend time and money protecting yep. safeguarding stopping and just right. you know, doing a lot of things and i don't think laws or culture has adapted to that you know. Well, and, and and it's almost impossible now with, uh, you know, this is one of the other things that's happening with cameras on every corner, facial recognition systems, you know, a quantity of different things where they're actually using it to track the flow and do the whole thing at this point. And again, I'm not trying to get into some big discussion about what's right and what's wrong, but, you know, the theory that as a police state, we're doing what we can to keep people because of terrorism from doing some action, uh, you know the issue becomes storage looking at it from, and I'm fine. If people want to hire me to maintain their storage, <laughs> that's, that's a great reason. You know, I'll be happy to work for the government to do that. If they're going to pay top dollar, I agree. That's fine. Cause they spent a lot of money on Zettabytes. They need somebody to manage it. And I'd be happy to help them. And I'm sure <laughs> they'll pay handsomely. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, and Snowden apparently wasn't happy to help them in this, but, but the thing that's surprising to me about Snowden, if I was going to say anything would mm -hmm. be, who didn't believe that they were already listening to all our Thank conversations? Thank you. I mean, Thank what is you. what is that like? I mean, this is exactly the exact same thing that's happened in that TV show, Person of Interest, Dang. where they're tracking everything that's going on around you. There's some probability scenario that actually happens, and I guarantee that there's something there where there's a correlation of probability standards mm -hmm. uh, for who has done what, when they've talked to somebody, when it is there. So who doesn't know that all this data isn't correlated in some way, and they're doing this? I mean, for God's sake. Walmart does this. Exactly. Google does this. I mean, they know when you walk into the pamper section that you may be having a baby or you're pregnant. Yep. So, uh, so my opinion is that Snowden 
threw himself to the wolves for nothing. Well, yeah, from that perspective. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, you know, there is the other side where people go, "Oh, well, you know, you saw a crime happening; it's not supposed to happen, so don't tell." You know, and therefore you told somebody, and so therefore now you're actually a traitor. And you know, and uh, you know, while there there might be some people who admire what he did, there may also be people who don't admire what he did. And either way, I'm just not surprised by it at all. Yeah, I'm like. If I'm going to tell everybody, hey, America, they are already watching you, who will be surprised? Well, yeah, I, I remember, honestly, I want to say mid-80s, where everyone said, if you pick up a phone and you're having a phone call and you say the president's name, bomb, whatever, you would have people knock at your door. They're watching this video now. Oh, you know it. Well, <laughs> and like, and like... I'm not shocked by it. I, I like, yeah, of course it was going on. What I'm shocked at is America's lack of a response where I thought they would be upset. Apparently they're not. Well, I, I mean, there's a lot of people who are upset. There's a lot of people, but the issue always becomes, how do you do something about it? How, I mean, who is the bad dude that you actually, I mean, there's nobody who says, oh, there's one guy at the top. Here he is. Let's go point fingers and make him the bad dude. There is no bad dude. You can actually say that this is it. I mean, right. if it's going to be a bad dude, was it Obama? Is it the you know NSA? Is it? I mean, who is it? Yeah, well, that's the thing. Irregardless of how you feel about, Wait, how do Obama, you even know where it is? Right, it can <laughs> be like him. let's let like let's go turn it off. Where do we go? Turn off the <laughs> internet. It, I don't know. Right. Well, I don't. I, I mean, it's not an internet, yeah, but it's, it's phone and everything cell phones or everything else. Mm. Right. So I'm just saying we don't know where it is necessarily that we can even go turn it off or even know that they turned it off. Exactly. And I'll say this: I was two weeks ago over a friend's house watching a stream on a computer of an event that was happening in Vegas that happened to cost people other people money, and I'm sitting there watching this for free as so is he, and then I look at my phone, and then I look at the TV, and then I look at my phone, and then I look at the TV, and I think, they know I'm getting this for free. Just because I have my phone sitting on this table. So I just leaned over turned the phone off. <laughs> well, there's there's probably some back door that automatically keeps the phone on, even though it says it's off. Oh, no, no. Well, I'll say, <laughs> the mic is always on, and, uh, Vlingo on Android taught me that because yeah. the phone can be sitting there asleep and I just say, Hey, Vlingo and the phone lights up, opens up and says, how can I help you? Hmm. So, yeah. And it's one of those things. Yeah. You got to pick right. your battles. Yep. Anyway, so this was all about storage in the space. And, you know, I, I guess the whole point ends up being at some point in time, they're going to run out of space Yeah. or they have, to, or they have to cycle through this or they have to figure out how they're going to get new storage. And, and this is possibly a, you know, a big concern for taxpayers being the fact that we are paying for this storage in yeah. some way. Um, and the, and really the issue and the whole point ended up being is that while people knew that maybe they were recording you, the problem is now that there's actual confirmation then do the civil suits allow a subpoena to actually allow you to actually get access to content? Mm. And that's that's the other thing. There's a difference between, okay, mysteriously, because this was what came up about the Apple phones, right, as well. I don't know if you if you had noticed, but there was a court case with which data got released that actually said that, that Apple had what is known as key escrow. Right. Uh, key escrow being the fact that they actually have the ability to decrypt the phones. They have like a master password or a master key that will decrypt the phones that have physical encryption that have been stopping law enforcement from getting access to the SSD that's built in into the phone. 
And so, you know, they've got like a seven-week back waiting log of phones, but they can physically decrypt them and get access to the data. And something got released in one of the court documents that allowed the public to now know that there is some plausible uh, key escrow item there, uh, being that they actually take a key, put it in escrow, and it actually is the master key. And so, so these are one of those things where, well, does that now allow us to subpoena Apple and ask from a civil suit to get this data versus a criminal suit, which, you know, typically they'll do something for law enforcement that they won't do for a lawyer. Right. Yeah, I mean, again, that doesn't shock me either. And it really, when it comes to these kind of legal things, I just sit back and watch because I have no idea what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Very, very, very cool stuff there, Scott. Um, first, I can't thank you enough for continuing with your classes. Trying out that file system class down in Australia sounds very cool um, to get into both the... Um, uh, well, the file, the file system class is going to be in Atlanta. Oh, so Atlanta. it's going to be like he's coming from Australia and we're going to do the class together here in the U.S. Gotcha, gotcha. Very cool. Right. Yep. Very cool. Um, yeah. For you, can for you, can um, can um, continuing to do that class. I gotta say thank you. If you're by the Santa Cruz area and you want to actually know how hard drives work and how to do forensic and data recovery, I can't encourage you guys enough out there who um, who are downloading this show. Go to go to myharddrivedie.com, look up the details on the class, and see what you can do to actually go there. Um, is there anything you want to end off with, Scott? Uh, nope. The Nothing I can think of specifically other than, you know, keep your eyes out for new technology. If you've got questions, send them in to you so that you can ask me them in our next podcast. I'm happy to answer anybody's questions or, you know, email stuff directly to me. It's fine. Scott at myharddrivedie.com. And uh, I'm happy to help anybody that I can. I try to answer every email that comes to me personally. Um, just understand, it takes me a while to get through 300 a day. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And uh, if you want to send in a voicemail to the show or email, you can send it to mail at com. Or if you want to call up and leave a voicemail, it is uh, 7076-POD-NUT. Um from Skype or from a phone or from Google Talk or Google Voice or whatever you can have at it. Send in all of your questions. Um, Scott, I definitely thank you for coming out, and I want to wish everyone a good week. Great. Thank you for having me. 